Welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, I'm joined by Liuba Gretchen Shirley, the founder and CEO of Vote Mama. She ran a targeted congressional race on Long Island against Peter King in 2018, losing a competitive race, and made history by petitioning the FEC to become the first candidate to receive approval to spend campaign funds on childcare. She has a great perspective on the political process through the eyes of a recent first-time candidate in 2018, and a great story about founding a new organization doing important work to open up the political process. Liuba Gretchen Shirley, tell me a bit how you grew up. My mom was a single mom. Um, I grew up with my mom and my grandparents who were Russian immigrants. I grew up uh, on Long Island in Amityville in the house that my grandparents bought when they first moved out from the city. I had a whole lot of animals and a whole lot of my cousins were around the corner and it was um, a lot of conversations about politics and history. My grandparents both escaped the Russian Revolution. My mom always had me, you know, in our local county legislator's office when I was three, I remember literally stuffing envelopes with my mother. So I was always active and we were always talking politics. Was there a candidate or a campaign or cause that captured your attention at a young age? Yeah, I was a weird dork. When I was 13, um, Bill Clinton was running for office, running for president, and I had a green marble notebook. I literally cut out clippings from newspapers, anything about Bill or Hillary or Chelsea, and I kept them in this green marble notebook, and I followed that race so carefully. And it's funny because the first time I met Hillary Clinton, I told her about my green marble notebook, and she laughed at me. And I can't believe still to this day that that's one of the first things I said to her. But yeah, I was very excited. I was 13 at the time, 11 or 12, maybe. And can you speak to the politics of Long Island, not just in the time that you've been politically active, but uh, in general, the type of politics of Long Island that you grew up in? Long Island is a weird place. I, I grew up here. I moved to the city when I was 18. I went to NYU for graduate school and undergrad. Moved back out here when I when my daughter was a year old. I was about 34 years old. It was not something I was planning to do. I didn't have paid family leave. Couldn't get off of any childcare wait lists. Um, I moved back out here. My husband and I decided this would be a good place. We had my mom. We had built-in childcare. And so we moved back out here as the Trump election was starting. And it was like we had left New York. We were an hour outside of the city and there were Trump parades everywhere. There were Trump flags everywhere. Live close to Lindenhurst. There was a parade that they put a dummy of Hillary Clinton in the back of a pickup truck in a cage. There were Trump that bitch bumper stickers everywhere. And it was very unusual to go from living in Manhattan to coming back to Long Island and having it be so red and so blatantly pro-Trump. Long Island, when I was a kid, honestly, I don't remember it being that divisive. But again, I was little and I, you know, I went to a few protests and I volunteered in my local county legislator's office. But I don't I don't remember it being that divisive. And what do you think it is about Trump that connected with folks on Long Island? For example, the district that you ran in, I believe Bill Clinton carried a time or two. Obama was very competitive there, but yet it was a district that seemed to connect with Trump. There were a lot of people who wanted someone different, somebody who wasn't politics as usual. Hey, you know, he talks like me, he sounds like me. He's not politically correct. He says what he's thinking. I mean, I heard that from so many people. And then there were a lot of Republicans who were very Republican. And then when Donald Trump got elected and they started to realize what was happening to the Republican Party, ended up supporting me in my campaign, said that they felt that the party was leaving them. But the people who like Trump out here, I mean, frankly, unfortunately, there are a lot of racists who really felt that Trump was saying a lot of what they wanted to say and were afraid to say. Peter King came out and supported the Muslim ban. I organized a protest in front of his office. And there was a, a small counter protest where 
where people were literally screaming racist, misogynistic, scary things at the rest of us. And there was a man who said to a woman who was in a hijab, go back to your country and I hope you get raped and all sorts of horrible things. There's a lot of that misogyny and a lot of that racism and the people out here who support Trump. Not everybody. There are definitely those people who feel that he spoke to the little guy, which is crazy considering he's wealthy and a reality TV star and you wouldn't feel that people would connect with him. But he was saying a lot of the stuff that people were thinking and just afraid to say. Trump and the things that he was saying gave them permission to be okay with what they were thinking. Talk a little bit about some of the work in your life before entering conventional campaign style politics. No, I didn't think I was going to run for office. I worked in international development, specifically focused on women's economic empowerment. When I was in my 20s, I worked for the United Nations Association. Then I actually managed the merger of that with the UN Foundation, where we, you know, we advocated for more US funding for the UN and humanitarian causes. And I, I love that work. I built a membership program. We had 125 chapters across the country. And then I went and I worked for New York University while I was getting my MBA. I got uh, an MBA focused on economics and social innovation. And it's funny, I always thought I was going to get a, get a second degree in international affairs. And the more that I worked in nonprofit organizations, the more that I realized I wanted those hard business skills. I had no intention of working in corporate America, always wanted to stay with nonprofits, but really thought the MBA would be important. And then I got a job working for an economist at NYU, and I was a director of operations. And we specifically focused on smallholder farmers in Ghana. And I went back and forth to Ghana regularly, and we were building mobile phone technology, helping them to better track the goods, the prices of goods between different markets. So they would understand what traders were paying for certain goods in different markets. And they actually had more information so they could negotiate better. Building apps to help them track their trade routes, track the mapping of their farms and know what property lines were. I loved that. And I never planned on leaving. I got pregnant with my first child while I was finishing my graduate degree and working full time at NYU. I only quit that job because I did not have access to paid family leave and I could not get off of any childcare wait lists. And it was the hardest decision, one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make, but I quit a job that I loved. My biggest fear was being mommy tracked at that point. And I started consulting and that's running for Congress two years later was not on my mind. It never even occurred to me that I would run for Congress at that point. What does even a well-informed person in America not understand about what's going on in a place like Ghana or West Africa more broadly? I will tell you a story. When I had to sit down and do my interview with the Independence Party on Long Island, the leader of the party asked me about my time working in Africa. And then he, my husband's South African as well. And so he asked me about my husband being South African. And we started to talk about my work. And he said to me that he went to Nigeria once and his wife told him to bring a lot of candy to give out to the kids. And I just remember looking at him and thinking, my God, you have no idea what you're talking about. He starts talking about Africa as what you would think that you see on, on a show, on a TV show, and has no concept that some of the largest growing economies are in Africa. If you look at some of the super highways, then you compare them to Southern state on Long Island. It's completely different. And he doesn't understand that Africa is, there's 57 countries. And how are we looking at this? But he had this very American savior and give candies to these little kids, rather than understanding that you have to talk about where you are in Africa. My experience working, I, I worked in Accra, we had an office in Accra, and then I worked in the very rural regions in uh, Ho and in Kumasi, and we were working with smallholder farmers there. And it's, it's a completely different experience, and it depends where you are. And there is no way to summarize it quickly. And he didn't understand that. You used the term being mommy track. What, what was your concern? What does that look like? If you are a woman and you take time out of the workforce, 
because you have children. If you slow down, if you start part-time work, if you start consulting, you are immediately mommy tracked. You are looked at as somebody who is now no longer a competent professional. If you had two years out of the workforce, if you had six months out of the workforce, people are now concerned about whether or not you can come back and jump right back into it. If you are a lawyer and you take two years out of your work, have a baby and take care of your child. And if you come back, you're literally paid less than first year associates. That's what mommy tracking is. People don't take you as seriously if you take a time out. And yet if we actually had real paid family leave in this country, many women wouldn't have to take a time out. We are the only country in the world other than Papua New Guinea without paid family leave. So there are many women who, you know, I, I didn't want to quit my job. I loved my job, but I could not bring myself to leave my child in unsafe conditions when she was just a few weeks old and I couldn't get off of any other childcare wait lists. And it was a decision that I had to make. And I can't tell you how many moms I've talked to who have taken breaks from their career and then had a really hard time getting back into it. Please tell your story of how the switch flipped for you from the, the life that you were living that we've talked about here to then being thrust into the political world pretty soon after the 2016 election. When Donald Trump was elected, my kids were, Mila was almost two, Nicholas was a few months old. I reached out to my local Democratic Party pretty much the next day, I think. And I wanted to get involved. I was a county committee member when I lived in the city. I wanted to wanted to do something, wanted to volunteer. No one got back to me. I kept calling. I kept emailing. I said, put me to work. I need to do something. I finally got an email two months later that said, if you have sent an email, if you want to volunteer, but you haven't heard back, send another email. We'll try to get back to you. And at that point, I said, this is ridiculous. I started an indivisible group and I started organizing actions. It was my way of dealing with what was happening with all of the executive orders in the beginning of Trump's presidency. So every morning I'd be up nursing my son and I'd be writing on my phone. This is the action alert. This is what we're calling Peter King. This is the particular issue. This, this is the background. These are your talking points. And I started this Facebook group that grew to 3000 people and people started doing this. They started calling him. They started holding him accountable. They started showing up to town halls and events and, and organizing the way that we were organizing. And it's really what the Democratic Party on Long Island should have been doing. And there were times where I thought this is crazy. Why am I organizing outside of the party? But the party wasn't organizing. When he came out in support of the Muslim ban, I organized that protest and I reached out to groups across Long Island. We had about 400 people show up and I had called his office that day and I said, I'd like to come in and speak with him. I had been requesting a meeting for a while, never got one. And so they told me to come in at 3.30. I got there at 3.30 and they had locked the office doors and sent all the staff home. And we had 400 people march. And on Monday morning, I called and he agreed to meet with me. He told the press that he met with a leader of a resistance group, not a constituent, not a mom in the community, but a leader of a resistance group. And when I asked if he would hold a town hall, he said town halls only diminish democracy. That really affected me. And I organized a town hall and I had a six foot cardboard cut out of Peter King. A lot of people showed up and I answered questions for him and he refused to come. And it was probably around that time that people kept asking if I would consider running. I was nursing. I had a one-year-old. I had a three-year-old. There was no way I thought I could do it. Somebody finally said to me, I think it was in August, what do you need right now for us to convince you to run? And I laughed and I said, well, I need childcare. And I did it anyway. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I launched the campaign at the end of October. And for the first few months, I ran without childcare. My mom was a teacher and she'd come home at 3.30 and watch them every day. But I had two babies with me in tow. All day, every day, I was doing call time with a baby on my lap. It was the least planned thing I had ever done. But I was just, I was pissed. I could no longer sit back and watch his voting record and watch nobody doing anything about it. And you're a bright person, accomplished in what you've done, but new to politics, this kind of politics. At that moment in time, when you start getting serious running for Congress, what were you envisioning running for Congress look like? And then how close did that come to the reality 
of what a congressional race really is. This is one of the problems and one of the reasons I started Vote Mama, because if you haven't been involved in a political campaign, you have no idea what it will be like. And I remember trying to find information and I would find quotes from Kirsten Gillibrand or Grace Meng. And I you know, think if they can give birth while in office, surely I can figure out how to do this with toddlers. But very few people know what a campaign really looks like unless you're in politics. So I was told in the beginning that I was going to have to raise $100,000 before anybody would take me seriously. I you know, had worked in nonprofits my whole life. I didn't come from a wealthy family. Started calling everybody and made this ridiculous Excel document that was color coordinated of everybody I'd ever known. And I started calling people and I raised 126,000 in the first two months and then I hired staff. I assumed it would be a lot of talking to voters and I knew I was going to have to fundraise. I don't think I ever realized how much I was going to have to fundraise. But I knew I'd be out talking to voters. I knew I'd be knocking on doors and holding forums and town halls because, frankly, I had been doing that all year anyway, not with a thought process of running, but really I wanted to make sure that people had their voices heard, could see that this district had not had that. Nobody knew who their local representatives were. Nobody ever had spoken to Peter King before. Many people were being blocked from his Facebook page. All I wanted to do when I set out to run was to make sure that people actually had somebody they could talk to. There is a version of Peter King was more willing to work across the aisle than the average Republican. Some unions would endorse Peter King from time to time. Are those legitimate positive attributes to Peter King? How do you think about that? It's good marketing. Peter King used to come off as bipartisan. He is a nice person. He is somebody that you can have a conversation with and will be personable. But if you actually look at his voting record, he, you know, he voted to defund Planned Parenthood 17 times. He voted to take health care away from 74,000 people in our district. He was against a woman's right to choose, even in the cases of rape or incest. He had very extremist viewpoints, and he voted that way. But people didn't pay attention to it because he came across as an affable guy. And so he got away with a lot of it. But he was never bipartisan. He used to say all the time he would tout that he was the most bipartisan member of Congress. Bipartisan members of Congress do not vote to defund Planned Parenthood. When you actually looked at his voting record and when you actually looked at the things that he had said, it was very clear how extreme he was. What is your advice now to people who, like you, don't have a specific background in campaign politics, but are considering running for Congress or a similar office? So how do you counsel people to make that decision when you're asked? If someone is running for the right reason, I will always counsel them to jump into a race. It's not rocket science. That's the one thing I think I took away from my campaign. I remember in the beginning, I used to I used to look at these elected officials and think they were so smart, they were so powerful, they got elected to Congress, they must know everything. You get to this campaign and you get to know these people. And, and there are those who ran for the right reasons and who really genuinely care about policy. And then there are those who don't care at all about policy. And they just spit out the talking points that their staff gives them. And they don't understand, nor do they care. If you are a person who genuinely cares and wants to make a difference and change things for people in your community and across the country, you should run. It's not that hard. It's a lot of work, but you can absolutely do it. If you can read and you can pick up a phone and you can ask people for money and you can get over the nerves of that, you can run for Congress. One of the first things somebody told me was that you're not raising money for yourself. You're raising money for your cause. You're raising money for your community so that you can represent people. And once you have that mindset switch, it's easy to raise money for your campaign. As long as someone is willing to put the time and the effort in, I would absolutely tell them to run for office. I'm sure you got a lot of advice, much of it sound, but was there advice that you kept hearing or maybe from well-meaning people, maybe from people who had good credentials or were, were smart, but that through your own experience, you just found was outdated or wrong, not a fit for your campaign? Yes. 
I was told to wait my turn. I was told to listen to the party bosses. All of that is outdated advice. There are so many party bosses that feel that they can be the puppet masters and they can decide who gets to run for what seat. And that's not how politics works. That's how politics used to work. And that's not how it should continue to work. I ran despite being told not to. And we built a grassroots campaign. We took no corporate PAC money. We knocked on over 250,000 doors. Every door we knocked on, someone said, you're the first person to ever come to my door. I was an unconventional candidate. I was looked at as a young mom. I look a lot younger than I am. And so a lot of people didn't take me seriously. And I always had two babies with me. So many people didn't take me seriously. And I knocked on doors and raised the money and talked to people and held forums and did everything that people will tell you is not important. They'll tell you, you should go to the big political dinners and you should make friends with the people in power. I made friends with the voters. That's, I think, what made a huge difference in our campaign. And can you talk about the process of breaking new ground so that candidates, I believe you're the first candidate to get federal approval to use campaign resources for child care. What was the genesis of that and how did you pursue it logistically? Yeah, I was the first woman to ever get approval. And it was the first time that FEC ever had a quorum. So it was a, an official ruling. Um, they had approved it one off for a few men in the past. I had two babies. I was nursing. I was doing call time. I was at events with a baby strapped to my chest and a toddler by my side. And I only had childcare when my mom got home from school. And about five months into the campaign, it was unsustainable. I couldn't do it. And I remember saying to my campaign manager, I can't afford childcare. You know, we were living the four of us on my husband's salary. I had to give up my salary to run. This is why we have so many millionaires in Congress. Because the average working person can't quit their job for a year and a half or two years and run. I didn't really have a choice. I put this request into the Federal Election Commission. I asked if I could use some of the funds that I was raising for my campaign for childcare. It was a necessary campaign expense. Otherwise, I couldn't go out and campaign during the day. Everybody told me I was crazy. It was political suicide. You're going to be attacked as a mother. You're going to be attacked as a woman. Don't do this. The only person who supported me was my campaign manager. And we put that request in. And honestly, I was terrified. I was waiting to see the fallout. My campaign manager called me and she said, Lupa, Lupa Gretchen Shirley, sit down. And I thought I was about to get yelled at. I thought I had done something terribly wrong. And she said, Secretary Hillary Clinton wrote a three-page letter in support of your request. And then 25 members of Congress wrote in in uh, support as well. And I remember going down to D.C. with my kids in the back. And it was a bipartisan, unanimous decision. And the next day, every press outlet in the country covered it. And Fox News said it was the one bipartisan thing they could agree with. And if you know me, Fox News agreeing with me on anything is shocking. It was small structural change, but it literally has the ability to change the entire political landscape. We have now seen more than 100 state and local candidates take advantage of this to use their campaign funds for child care. 74% of funds have been used by women. More than half of the funds have been used by candidates of color. From 2018 to 2020, there was a 311% increase in the funds used. You know, men and women and Republicans and Democrats are using their campaign funds for child care. It makes a massive difference in who even considers running for office. And now with Vote Mama on our foundation side, we've actually been working to expand the FEC ruling to all 50 states by 2023. I know you received endorsements from national figures, figures in New York, some of the big organizations on the Democratic side. Uh, was there a figure or an organization that really came through above and beyond for you when you ran? Elizabeth Warren, by far, was the most supportive. My son had broken his leg during the campaign. He actually broke it twice during the campaign and was diagnosed with osteogenesis imperfecta. That was something I didn't talk about the second time he broke his leg because I was so attacked the first time he broke his leg. And leaders of my own party questioned my fitness as, as a mother and whether or not I could safely take care of my children. And I was so attacked 
So it was the day that my son was tested for OI and I had two babies crying in the pediatrician's office and I took them home and I put them down for a nap and left them with my mom. And I went back to the office to do more call time and I was an emotional wreck that day. And Elizabeth Warren called for the first time and she asked how I was, uh, congratulated me on the primary and we started chatting. We talked politics for a little while and then she asked how I was doing and I burst into tears on the phone and I told her everything that was going on in my life and she gave me such a mom pep talk. You know, we moms, when we run out of milk, we make breakfast with orange juice. She told me about her Aunt B, about her life when she had babies and was a law professor. And that first conversation that we had really helped me keep going in my campaign. At that point in my campaign, I needed that pep talk. And then throughout the campaign, you know, she was so supportive. That made a huge difference to me. And Kathy Hochul, honestly, she would call me every time I had a debate, she would call me and give me a pep talk before a debate. And that made a huge difference to me. It was really the mom's who had done it before, who would be most supportive. Just call and be there if you needed somebody to you know, prop you up and talk about what, what it was like and what was going on. I got to tell you, those, those conversations really made a huge difference. And I'm a political consultant. A lot of the people who listen to this podcast are consultants. Can you offer a window into how you put together your consultant team? I'm sure you had good options at times and were approached by people who are quality folks for media, polling, direct mail. How did you think about that? Um, I chose Berlin Rosen first. Uh, a friend put me in touch with Isaac Goldberg from Berlin Rosen, who, you know, is still a friend today. Uh, Emily Robinson and, and Isaac Goldberg were, were a huge part of our team. And they were the first consultants that I brought on, the first contract I signed. And they were there in October. And then I did not have staff for the first two months. I brought on my campaign manager in January. It was hard to find a campaign manager. I have to tell you, as somebody who's not in politics at that point and didn't know a lot of people, it was very difficult to find the right campaign manager, but I lucked out. I happened to find a really, really wonderful campaign manager. Um, and then Anna Berkachuk uh, helped me put together the rest of my team. We brought on a finance director and a call time manager, field person. She handled most of my consultants. Um, Monica from Seneca Strategies, Monica Klein was also... I probably brought her on around the same time I brought Anna on. She was my communications consultant. She was an absolutely critical part of my team. I actually tell all of our candidates that we're working with, I think it's really critical to have in-house staff. It's great to have your consultants, but you need to have in-house staff who then works with your consultants closely and manages the team. I, I picked people that I liked, honestly. It was it was people that I had good conversations with, and that's that's how we built the team. And you came up short in 2018, about as close as any Democrat has come to beating Peter King as sort of a 54-46, 53-47 type result. But how do you how do you look back on that experience? It was one of the best things I've ever done. Nobody thought I could beat Peter King. Everybody, he always won by 20, 20 to 40 points. No one ever took any candidate that ran against King seriously. And I got him down to a six-point margin. We outraised him. We outworked him. And he retired the next year because he didn't want to go through that again. He was shocked, I think, when I decided not to run. I'm glad that I did it. It proved that the race was absolutely, it proved that the, 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 the district was flippable. It proved that you can run if you run a campaign the right way and you work really hard and you build a grassroots movement, you absolutely can take on somebody who's been in office for nearly 30 years. Peter King hadn't debated anybody in eight years, hadn't shown up for debate, hadn't didn't think he needed to. And I got him to show up to five debates. And I remember being terrified for the first one. Literally, I chewed an entire box of Pepto-Bismol on the way to the library for that debate. 
And the first second, you know, he opened his mouth and started talking, it was clear that he didn't understand the policies and didn't care. And I was no longer nervous debating him. And in the last debate that we had, he called me the queen of liars. He called me an illegitimate constituent. I walked out of there arguing with him as we left the the TV studio. And my campaign manager just shook her head and she said, "I, I don't even know what to say. But it was a lot of fun to run that campaign. So Peter King retires, why not run for the open seat? There are a lot of members in Congress who followed that exact roadmap, losing a a close first race and then coming to Congress in their second race. So why not follow that path for yourself? Two reasons. And when I said earlier that uh, quitting my job was the hardest decision, that was the second hardest decision. Not running for Congress again, that was the hardest decision. I had already launched Vote Mama. I have this vision for growing this organization into this huge national organization that changes the way that politics works. And I couldn't do that if I ran for Congress again. And honestly, I can do so much more with this organization than I can with one vote in Congress in a purple district, and I'm actually pretty red district. On our PAC side, we've now supported over 250 Democratic moms running from school board to Senate. I launched the foundation a few months after I decided not to run for Congress. I launched the foundation and we have now expanded campaign funds for childcare. There are now 26 states who have approved it for state and local candidates. We've introduced legislation in 14 states just this legislative cycle. We are doing research now. We have six full-time staff, multiple consultants, nine research fellows. We have over 150 applications that we're going through right now for this round of interviews. There is so much more that I can do building out this national organization, making a difference and changing the perspective of people. When you look at a mom running for office, donors don't take her seriously. Voters don't. The press doesn't. And I wanted to change that narrative where the first question you're asked is not, who's going to watch your kids while you campaign, but why are you running for office and how can I help? And that was more important to me. And the other thing is I was pregnant. I had run for office with a one-year-old and a three-year-old. I knew how difficult that was. And I would have given birth a month and a half before the primary. And I had very difficult deliveries with each of my children. I was hospitalized after my son was born for a few weeks. I could not go through that in the middle of a campaign, especially one that was that important with an open seat that we could have won. I chose to stay with Vote Mama and I chose to have my baby. Both were the right decisions. Could have run and I could have won that seat easily, I think, that that cycle. But honestly, I am so much happier building out this organization because there's so much more I can do. You've talked about the origin story of Vote Mama, but how do you take the idea and what are the steps uh, to start turning it into reality? The day after my campaign, I cried for a whole day. And literally the day after that, I just started to think back to the beginning and the support that I needed that I didn't have and what I wanted to provide for other moms. I spent the month of December reaching out to electeds across the country. I went down to DC. I had a bunch of meetings and I got people to sign on to our advisory committee. Governor Hochul was the very first person to sign on to our advisory committee. Congresswoman Gwen Moore, uh, Congresswoman Kim Schreier, Katie Porter joined, you know, Grace Meng, all of these people who were so supportive of my race and then who also ran at the same time that I did, joined our advisory committee, you know, filed all the paperwork, got the pack up off the ground. And we had our first launch event in March of 2019. And I remember worrying how, how was I going to recruit candidates the first round? Hillary Clinton and Governor Hochul came to our launch event and <laughs> Hillary answered a FaceTime call from her grandchild, grandchildren during the, uh, during her speech. And it went viral and it ended up on Colbert that night. And my mom called me at midnight screaming, you're on Colbert. It took off. We got applications from people around the country, hundreds. And we interviewed these women and it was absolutely incredible. We had candidates burst into tears during calls because they finally felt that it was, you know, the first safe space to talk about what it's really like. We had one woman 
who was running whose daughter 14 and was mad at her because she no longer had time to drive her to soccer practice. And she felt that she could share that with us. Usually when you talk to a PAC, you know, in my personal experience, you tell them everything that's going right with your campaign, all the money you raise, all the endorsements you have, you know, your path to victory, how everything is going to be perfect. And then you get your check and you get your endorsement. And then, you know, you may or may not hear from them again. I really wanted to provide the Mama's Network, a place where you could talk about what was really happening and what it was really like and get emotional support as well as political support. We've done everything from put someone's finance plan together to help them hire staff, to give them talking points when they're doing their town hall, to helping them find a babysitter and pick out a car seat. We fully become involved in our candidates' campaigns. You mentioned getting hundreds, by this point, maybe thousands of, of inquiries from potential candidates you know, up and down the ballot. So what criteria are you looking for to put the stamp of approval and to engage with someone? We're looking for moms who are going to go out and fight for for working families. They have to support paid family leave. They have to support universal pre-K, common sense gun regulation. Moms that understand these issues because it's their lived experience. It's and they're willing to go out and fight for their community and and do the hard work. And people have asked if there's a mom in the race and there's a man in the race and the mom might not be the greatest candidate, who do you support? Honestly, being a mother does not make you a qualified candidate but it doesn't make you not qualified. And I think that's really one of the most important things is the people that we support are excellent candidates who are also mothers, because usually you don't get taken seriously if you're a mom. But you do have a role that almost has a nonpartisan element to it, right? Yeah, so our foundation is our nonpartisan nonprofit arm. We work with Republicans to get legislation passed. And the work that we're doing with Campaign Funds for Child Care now is we actually have to go state by state to get it approved for state and local candidates. So 15 states have now passed legislation. 10 have approved it through ethics rulings. One has approved it through an attorney general ruling. 14 this year have introduced legislation, complete bipartisan support for the for the Campaign Funds for Child Care. Some of the places where we've had some difficulty. I mean, if you look at Louisiana, Morgan LaMondre was a, was running for a state seat in Baton Rouge, and she put a request into the Louisiana Ethics Commission, and they had approved it for four men in the past. They had men, four different men could use their campaign funds for child care. And when she put the request in, they told her it was a 71-year-old man on the committee, and he said, you have misplaced priorities, and your primary responsibility is to take care of your children. So we worked with her on the appeal process, and we got publicity around it, and she won the appeal. Louisiana is now one of the states that you are allowed to use campaign funds for child care. So all of the work that we're doing on the camp- on the foundation side is nonpartisan and it's research as well. So it's not just passing legislation, but we are we are tracking the use of campaign funds for child care. We wrote a report about it last year. We are now we've just launched our state of motherhood survey. So this is a survey that is going out to all female state legislators across the country. We've already done the research at the federal level. Right now, it's 7% of our Congress members are moms with kids 18 or younger. When I first launched Vote Mom, it was actually 5%. Nobody has that data at the state level. So the survey that we've sent out has specific questions for those who are mothers, for those who are caregivers, and for women who don't have children. And we want to get a better understanding of what the experience is like to run and to serve as a mom. What are the barriers? What are the resources? Is there a lactation room? Is there a changing table? Is there a mother's caucus? Is there even a women's caucus? Certain questions like that. And then we're looking at legislation that is passed in those states. Have they codified Roe? Have they passed paid family leave? Do they have universal pre-K? Do they have full day kindergarten? And looking at how that correlates with how many moms are serving in their state legislatures. Our PAC side is completely partisan. We only support Democratic moms. Our foundation side is research and legislation, nonpartisan nonprofit. And you and I are talking in March of 2022. What are realistic goals? What will determine 
for you if this is a successful cycle for Vote Mama at the end of this election? We have so many incredible federal candidates this year in particular, and I think the Secretary of State races that we are supporting. I am concerned what will happen when and if Donald Trump runs again. I want to make sure that we have good, strong, democratic secretaries of state across the country. We're supporting Chelsea Clark in Ohio, Jason Benson in Michigan, um, Maggie, Maggie Oliver in New Mexico, Anna Valencia in Illinois. Those seats are critical if we can make sure that um, that Jocelyn and Anna get elected and that Maggie and Jocelyn stay in office, I think that will be very successful. I think Jasmine Beach Farr is somebody that we're supporting in North, Car- North Carolina's 14th. If she takes out Madison Cawthorn, that will be a huge win. And we've been working with Jasmine since before she even announced when she was still thinking of whether or not she's going to run. I would love to see her take out Madison Cawthorn. We are weeks or months away potentially from the Supreme Court handing down a decision that overturns Roe versus Wade or maybe functionally guts Roe versus Wade. You know, what is your read on the impact that that would have politically if the Supreme Court hands down that kind of decision? I think it will happen. I'm expecting it to happen. It will fire up the base. It will fire up the women. It will make women want to go out and volunteer for strong democratic women in particular. This is why state races matter so much because there are so many states that will immediately, you will no longer have the right to have an abortion. You will no longer be able to control your own body. Um, and I think I think it will fire up the base. I guess what your advice would be to a, a first-time candidate. What is your advice to someone who has a germ of an idea to set up a political organization, a political nonprofit to try to get something off the ground? Setting up a nonprofit or political organization, setting up any organization is very much like setting up a campaign. The first few months are hell and you will want to quit so many times because I remember the first few months of my congressional campaign and dealing with the compliance firms and the lawyers and the paperwork and filing everything. And I hated that part. All I wanted to do was get out and talk to voters, but I stuck with it and I did it all and I got it done. And then I got to the good part. It's the exact same thing with starting an organization. You got to deal with the lawyers and all the, you know, the papers that you have to fill and raising the initial money and you have to go through all of that. It sucks in the beginning, but once you get to the good part, you actually get to do work that you love that makes a difference that changes something. My advice is to stick with it and realize the first few months are going to absolutely suck and just keep going. And at this point, three years in, what does your day-to-day look like? Can you sort of demystify what it looks like to be the, the founder CEO I get up at the crack of dawn, I get three children out the door, have to fight with them to get everybody dressed and clothed and fed. It's funny, I was I was in the car with my kids the other day and I was like, what can we negotiate? What parts of this morning can we cut out so that we can get to school on time? Hanging out with their guinea pigs was non-negotiable. They couldn't cut that out. So the first three hours of my day are crazy and hectic and driving kids to school. I come home, I get a cup of coffee and I go up to my attic um, and my mom takes the baby. She's downstairs with the baby and I, I start. You know, right now I spent the first four hours of my day in candidate interviews. Um, And then we have multiple staff meetings. I have to do call time. Unfortunately, I still have to do that. We have donor meetings. We help our candidates with press. We had one of our candidates, Francois Alavas, who's running for state Senate in New York. She was at a local Democratic club meeting in Brooklyn. She was asked not once, but twice, how can you be a senator and a mom at the same time? So we worked with her. We, we actually clipped the audio from the event, shared that. We got her pressed. Um, there was a USA Today article and a Brooklyn Paper article. So we worked with her on that. I will spend time with our candidates. I will join some of their um, Zoom forums and give them talking points. Um, we'll put policy papers together. We will be talking to legislators specifically on the different pieces of legislation we're working on around campaign funds for childcare. 
coming up with strategy around that. I mean, every day is a little bit different. We are always very busy. <laughs> I run from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting and try so hard to get time to actually sit down and get the work done. Because usually I um, then have to run downstairs, do dinner, do homework, get everybody to bed. And then I'm usually back at my desk in the evenings. Is it fair to ask what your answer is or what should be the answer when a mother is asked, how can you be a mother and a candidate? How can you be a mother and an elected official? Being a mother makes you understand what happens to so many other people in your community. Every time I talked about child care or paid family leave, somebody would say, ignore the women's issues and stick to the bread and butter issues. Even before the pandemic, we were losing $57 billion a year because of the lack of child care in this country. And you look at what happened during the pandemic with millions of women being pushed out of the workforce. Who was it who were the most vocal? It was the moms in Congress. You know, our first bailout package gave over $60 billion to the airline industry and less than $4 billion to the child care industry. And it was the moms in Congress who were most vocal, who finally got us to actually bail out the child care industry. Being a mom and understand, understanding that perspective and understanding what it's like to juggle everything gives you a unique perspective. Legislators legislate on their lived experience. We are the only country in the world other than Papua New Guinea without paid family leave. It is more expensive to send your infant to childcare than it is to send your teenager to college. We spend more money per person on healthcare than the rest of the industrialized world. We have the worst maternal mortality rate in the industrialized world. In New York City, black women die at 12 times the rate as white women in childbirth. Having a mom who gets these issues in office, it makes you uniquely qualified. You can say all of that, and then you also point out that you would never ask a man that question ever. And MJ Hager, I loved her answer always. Whenever she was asked that, she would always say, that's insulting to my husband to think that my husband can't manage my children while I'm out campaigning. And it's true. When a man is running with small children, he is immediately looked at as somebody who is responsible, as somebody who understands the other parents in his district, as somebody who will care about what funding his, his children's school is getting. But when you are a mom, you are immediately thought that you don't have the time. If you want something done, you give it to a busy mom. You've been generous with your advice on different fronts now, but is there anything else you could offer to the next generation of people in politics? What should that person be doing some practical things to be preparing for a career in or around the political industry? Work on campaigns. Get a job on a campaign for a candidate that you respect and hold them accountable. Hold your representatives accountable get a job volunteering. If you're in high school, get a job working on a campaign. My finance director wanted to work in politics. She was working on her dad's lobster boat. She had never worked in politics. We hired her as my call time manager. She eventually became my finance director, went on to become the finance director of the Florida State Party and started the now largest voter registration organization in Florida, Me Vicino. And she did that in a few short years. And do you have an unusual work habit, something that's maybe a little unconventional, a little different, but that works for you? <laughs> I have two strange work habits. One, I colored during call time. I had uh, adult coloring books and color pencils, and I'd sit with my headset on and I would color. And it was the only way I got through call time in my entire office was literally the papers ripped out of coloring books all over my office. Um, and apparently, and I cannot believe I'm telling you this, but if you're going to ask about strange work habits... Apparently, when I am on call time, I would take out the inner parts of bagels, and I didn't know that I did this, and I'd roll them into little balls, and I would make bagel snowmen, and i put them on my desk, and I had no idea that I did that until my staff literally showed me a bunch of photos that they had taken of my bagel snowmen. That is probably the weirdest work habit I have. 
Well, let's end on a recommendation. What's something, a book, a TV show, a movie, a recipe, a product, something you've gotten into recently that you'd recommend people give a try? I watch two TV shows on repeat. I watch Newsroom and I watch Grey's Anatomy over and over again. I happen to watch the two of those on repeat. My husband makes fun of me. I usually get to the part where Derek dies and go back and I start at the beginning. Thanks for being so generous with your time. Thanks for talking through your experiences, both as a a first-time candidate and now as CEO of a successful new political organization, Vote Mama, Liuba Gretchen Shirley. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. I like your question. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.